and welcome to the next episode of our Tilney Investment Podcast. I'm Debbie Hare, Senior Investment Manager from Tilney's Edinburgh office, and I'm talking with Ben Seeger-Scott, our Head of Multi-Asset Funds. We're going to cover a few topics this morning. We'll start with an update on the market since our last podcast. We're then going to delve into Ben's views on current company valuations, um, a bit on where we are in the global recovery, and then finally the outlook for the US economy given both the magnitude of both monetary and fiscal stimulus. Um, we are recording the podcast from our homes today on Tuesday the 4th of May. Uh, before we begin, here is some important information. Nothing in this recording is intended to constitute advice or recommendation, and you should not take any investment decision based on its content. Any opinions expressed may be subject to change without notice. Remember that the value of investments can fall as well as rise, and that you may not get back the amount you originally invested. Past performance should not be considered a reliable indicator of future returns. Different funds carry varying levels of risk, depending on the geographical region and industry sector in which they invest. You should make yourself aware of these specific risks prior to investing. If you're unsure about the suitability of an investment, or if you need advice on your specific requirements, you should seek professional financial advice. So Ben, can you kick us off with an update on the markets, please? Absolutely. Thank you, Debbie. I think if, if we look back to the month of April, really what we saw is markets stabilise uh, quite significantly after Q1. And we talked about that, obviously, on the previous podcast. But Q1 was about risk on assets. So we saw equities rise and, crucially, government bonds were, were selling off. We saw yields rising, real yields moved in the opposite direction of prices. So when yields go up, the price of government bonds were falling. And what we saw actually in, in April is that movement stabilised. And that's been really important because the, the movement in government bond yields has really been impacting the rest of the market. And they rose from very low levels, actually had quite significant movement in Q1. Um, but in April, they they flattened off largely. Um, if you look at the yield on, on 10 years, so 10 years we often use the benchmark. So 10-year gilts, those UK government bonds, actually finished the month more or less where they started at zero spots, uh, 0.84%. Actually, within the month, we saw them initially yields fall, so that is prices rise, before reversing a little bit. So it was slightly U-shaped in the month, but overall, um, still still pretty static um, and levelling off. Similarly, in the US, and we often look to the US uh, as the largest economy in the world, 10-year US Treasury yields were actually 0.11% lower in yield terms on the month. That is stronger, last seen at 1.63%. Uh, and, and, you know, 11 basis points, 0.11% uh, doesn't sound a lot, but when you're talking about government bonds that tend not to move around all that much, it is quite notable um, that, that, you know, that, that they've firmed up that much. And I think that's helped inject some confidence into the market this sense that bonds aren't just selling off aggressively, which could cause some shocks, but actually a bit of stabilisation, I think, has, has been welcomed uh, more broadly. And elsewhere, we saw if we look at commodities, typical commodities such as gold and oil, actually both moving higher. Gold was up 4% on the month, uh, finishing at $1,769 an ounce. And Brent crude oil was up 6% on the month, and that was last seen at $67.25, towards the upper end of its trading range, and really it's moved quite a lot higher um, compared to where we were at the early stages of the crisis tomorrow. So a lot of that can be seen as confidence coming back into the market. And in terms of currencies, 
sterling and the US dollar haven't really done very much, but the euro has been strengthening quite a lot over the last month or so. And that comes from quite a weak level. Um, it was hit quite hard during the COVID crisis and in, in the early stages uh, of uh, end of last year, early this year. But we're seeing some strength there as well. And the eurozone is is quite a sort of risk on market as well. So I think there's there's confidence coming back into the market, and that stabilisation of government bond yields has been particularly important to that. Okay, thanks for that, Ben. Um, we're obviously well into corporate earnings season, and there's a level of confidence there, as you've just mentioned. And results so far have been broadly upbeat. Um, I think the vast majority of companies are returning to some kind of sales and earnings growth. Um, Big Tech was an obvious winner of the pandemic last year, and they've reported another bumper quarter. Um, So with markets hovering around all-time highs, what's your view on the valuation of these companies? Do you think they look expensive, or do you think that that earnings growth is starting to justify valuations? Uh, I, I think it's always interesting when you have earnings seasons, you tend to get a, a couple of, of, of different characteristics, depending on, frankly, the mood of the market. And as you highlight there, clearly it's it's been a good earnings season, season overall so far. Um, but that's, you know, it, it's actually been good. Sometimes what you get is what looks good, but that's just because companies have have guided down everyone's expectations to effectively manufacture a win. Whereas these numbers have been positive. Um, and I, I think that that's helping uh, the sentiment. But as you say, there is a lot of good news already in these prices. And that's where valuations in aggregate in parts of the market were looking a little bit high uh, late last year, early this year, particularly in the US market. But then you've got to dive within that and markets themselves. The deeper you get, the more complicated the story is. It's particularly US tech stocks that have been driving those higher valuations. Other parts of the market, financials, mining, all of the, the, the those parts of the market that do badly in a pandemic, actually their valuations weren't too expensive. So it's, it's difficult to generalize uh, too much. But I think it is fair to say, High valuations mean there's a lot of good news already in the price. Um, and valuations can come down and, and sort of average out through two ways. Either prices can fall, which is obviously bad uh, for investors, or earnings catch up. And that's what we're seeing now, I think. Those earnings numbers, uh, strong earnings numbers, are starting to help bring those valuations down. Because if a valuation, effectively, one way of looking at it is the price divided by the earnings. If earnings are rising, then the valuation is is normalizing. I still think markets look, uh, particularly US markets, look a little bit expensive overall. But there are lots of caveats that could could justify that. Uh, again, if you do see further earnings growth come through, that could be one reason. But also when interest rates are, are low, monetary policy is supportive, that can help higher valuations as well through, through, through a range of, uh, of technical reasons uh, as well as sentiment reasons. But I think what is interesting at the moment, we can almost tell there's good news in the price. And one of the ways, aside from valuations starting to normalise and not too much movement in aggregate, if you look at the individual companies doing well or, or doing badly, it, what, what I think is always interesting is how the market reacts to earnings misses, either on the upside or the downside. And I think what we've seen so far is companies are being punished more for missing on the downside beating on the upside that tells us good news is in the price everyone's assuming these numbers will be good so when they come in at, at a good level the markets tend to shrug, shrug it off if it's a particularly strong beat they might say you know that the stocks might react positively initially um, but generally there's good news already in there so markets shrug it off 
Whereas if you're expecting good news anyway, and you see a miss, sometimes you see companies that, that are falling short being disproportionately punished. And uh, you know, I think if you just look at a couple of companies, obviously Amazon had some good numbers, better than expected, because as we move out of the, the pandemic era, one might expect that, that people will, will revert to old shopping habits. So that was fairly positive and uh, very positive news, gave a small positive result. Conversely, Twitter actually fell initially on its reports. And even though it, it largely came in in line with earnings, it had slightly lower revenue guidance for the future. And Twitter got disproportionately hit in the, in the immediate aftermath. And I think that's that's really the sentiment that, that we're seeing. Um, and I think what's, what's important, we're, we're now going through quite an unusual period with the very bad numbers we had from last year, obviously with an enforced lockdown. Um, now we're seeing that recovery come through. What is going to be important, though, is looking for, for this trend. I think when you do have these strong bounces, it's very difficult to be particularly accurate in, in the earnings estimates that are coming through. You can tell the direction but because of the unusual circumstances of, of Q4 last year and Q1 this year, um, that the actual numbers themselves are perhaps less relevant than the aggregate direction. What's going to be important, though, is seeing whether or, that, whether or not that can be maintained. It's all good and well seeing a dip and then a bounce, which is largely expected. It's whether companies can then establish a new positive growth trend in subsequent quarters. And, and you can't get that in, in Q1 results. You obviously need to look through into some of the economic fundamentals and what's going on in the ground. And I think that's something that we'll need to, to keep a close eye on. You get some sense of that in terms of what comes through in the earnings reports and some of the, the commentary around that. But I think that's something we're going to have to watch for the next few months. Okay, so kind of building on what you've just been saying there, and in light of the fact that the vaccine rollout has been a lot faster than we maybe initially anticipated, and we're seeing you know real rapid pace of recovery, um, that has obviously supported upward global growth revisions, and it does appear that there's quite a lot of optimism around global growth generally. Um, so it's not just coming through in terms of upwards um, GDP figure revisions, but also in lower projections for the unemployment rates. So Ben, given this kind of optimism, when do you think central banks will start feeling the pressure to open that initial conversation about just about the process of beginning to withdraw policy support? And I mean, how do you think markets are going to react when that when that starts to happen? Well, I think that that's one of the key discussions for this year. And, and, and our listeners will recall back in January with the first suggestions, and it was largely just a sort of cerebral conversation amongst central bankers, this idea that at some point monetary stimulus will have to be withdrawn uh, to the so-called tapering quantitative easing tapering, and everyone remembers when they tried that following uh, several years after the global financial crisis, that there was a taper tantrum that was negative for markets. So I think central bankers are now extremely keen to control this message. But you know, th there's no two ways about it. Stimulus is there for exceptional reasons. And as markets recover and normalize, that, that stimulus needs to be withdrawn. So I think it's going to become a much more live debate We've already had some murmurings of it more recently. And I think the key factor is that you, you can only withdraw stimulus in the face of economic strength. And we're seeing a lot of, of strength in, in the numbers coming out, reasons to be optimistic. Uh, you, you highlighted the GDP numbers, and those have been positive uh, and showing a bounce back. 
Uh, we've got that the U.S. latest is uh, for Q1, I think it was 6.4% um, quarter on quarter. That's up from 43 in Q4 of last year, actually a fraction below expectations, which is 6.7. As we said, when you get these big, big movements, it's hard to be particularly, especially precise. But even in the Eurozone, I mean, the Eurozone has had a con confirmed double-dip recession. Um, Q1 numbers for the whole Eurozone came in at 0 .0, minus 0.6 quarter on quarter. But actually, that was an improvement on Q4, which was minus 0.7, and better than expectations. So that the trend in there is a little bit more positive. And I think what's relevant for, from our point of view is making sure it's a much more coherent message. So it's not just GDP. As you say, it's employment. It's unemployment numbers, but also underemployment numbers, seeing them start to improve. And I think what's really positive uh, from my perspective as well is retail sales and consumer confidence, because what you need to kickstart the economy is people to be going out, to be buying things, to be driving private consumption in the economy. That's how economic growth comes through. And one of the areas that we were a little bit concerned about in parts of last year, if consumer confidence dips, if people start to become worried about the future, if you get more money and all of this enforced saving that they've had with nothing to spend it on, the risk is that consumers effectively retrench and they start hoarding that money for a rainy day. And if everyone's hoarding and no one's spending, then you bring on an economic downturn. All of the indications are that retail sales are still strong. In fact, the UK had very strong retail sales numbers. Uh, the most recent ones reported were for March, and that was while the economy was still in lockdown or a form of lockdown. It was before non-essential retail opened. And there we saw surprisingly strong retail sales numbers and the indication from some of the high-frequency data. You get data, for example, from Google that looks at mobility and where people are moving. The indications are that, that retail sales will pick up even further when the April numbers are reported and you've seen economic reopening. So there's lots of reasons to be positives, and we see that from, from multiple different angles. It's a very clear and coherent signal. The challenge, of course, is whether or not some of this is a sequencing effect. We've seen an upgrade to the GDP figures globally, but a lot of that has actually been driven by improved fiscal stimulus. If you look at the, the, the forecast from before the start of this year, that was before the Democrats in the U.S., had control of uh, both houses, uh, both houses in the US, the, the Senate uh, and the House of Representatives, that allows them to push through much more aggressive fiscal stimulus. So some of it can actually be shorter term, a boost to the shorter term numbers, but perhaps some tailing off uh, at the longer end numbers. I think the other area that we're particularly focused on, consumer confidence is high. But as some of these continu economic continuity measures roll off, the furlough schemes and business continuity loans, there is a risk later in the year that we start to see a few more business failures and unemployment um, potentially pick up as, as furlough schemes end. So it'll be important to see how those factors come through. It's a, that, that's basically, I think, a long way of saying, yes, economic recovery is coming through. It's not all entirely plain sailing but the numbers look good. It is worth highlighting as well that economies are not markets, so we'll need to see the interplay between those two. Um, and as all of these numbers come through, I think that the Fed, the Bank of England, and the European Central Bank probably won't have many options to keep QE, uh, quantitative easing, and aggressive monetary stimulus 
for much longer. It's easy to justify it when inflation is low, when economies are closed. As those economies start to reopen and as the uh, inflation outlook starts to, to look a little bit, uh, or starts to be trending slightly higher, it becomes that much harder for central banks to keep those policies going. And there's been a universal message that they will scale back their purchasing programs before they increase interest rates, and you need a little bit of a lag. So I think central bankers we know have been thinking about it from the start of the year, because that's what caused some of the initial wobbles back in January, since which they stopped talking publicly. But we know it's been in their minds, and there are, again, some murmurings around the edges. So I think it's going to be a particularly live discussion in the second half of the year, and it may lead to, to some action in terms of scaling back purchases programmes perhaps towards the end of the year. Okay, thanks for that, Ben. That's really interesting. Um, there has been a bit of discussion about the economy running hot in the US and looking at um, pre-pandemic figures, they're not actually really far behind the pre-pandemic peak. And obviously, given what you've just been discussing, we are expecting a big boost in consumption you know, later in this year. So based on what you've said about what the Fed are going to do in terms of resisting any moves to take the heat out of the economy, and also in consideration of, of what, you know, the huge plan that Biden has in place in terms of kind of rescuing the economy, do you think there's a chance that the US might overheat? Uh, I, I, I think overheating is almost uh, a nice problem to have from the Fed's perspective at the moment. They've the economy broadly has been struggling through a pandemic. They've had the best part of a decade of failing really to achieve meaningful inflation. I mean, that's even more true in the UK and Europe. But the US hasn't really had much uh, inflation and, and economic overheating to worry about. So in, in many ways, they, they have the tools and they have the experience to deal with this. And I think they're generally much happier dealing, trying to deal with inflation than, than disinflation and deflation. Um, and I think around the edges, there is there are potentially a few risks out there. I think what is interesting, I, it's worth, and we've mentioned it briefly before, but it's worth highlighting the sort of different types of inflation we consider. Um, and we know almost for a fact that short-term, year-on-year inflation is going to spike over the next few months. And that's on base effects. That's not driven just by increasing prices this year, but some of it is, is the low prices looking a year ago. So that's almost factored in. And I think we just need to look through that. Everyone talks about transitory inflation, a peak followed by a dip. But I think that dip is going to be at, at that higher level. And in terms of economic overheating, I think what's a real game changer is fiscal stimulus, because we haven't had as aggressive fiscal stimulus for the last decade as we're getting now. What we saw post-global financial crisis was a lot of monetary policy stimulus, and that tends to lead to asset price inflation, but it gets trapped in the financial system. Fiscal stimulus is a real game changer. It tends to impact inflation much more directly. It tends to go to those, uh, those individuals with a much higher propensity to spend and less to save. So it does tend to come through in the CPI inflation uh, to, to a somewhat greater extent. So I think if you look at it, after we've, we've moved through the, 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 this period of base effects, my expectation is that inflation will run a little bit hot on the medium term, so they're probably ahead of these 2% targets. And the Fed's indicated that it's comfortable with that. They talk about average inflation targeting, which is code for it's runs low for the last decade, so we can let it run a little bit hot as well. And I think a combination of monetary stimulus and or loose monetary policy, loose fiscal policy, and a strong consumer 
consumer confidence and uh, and then moving through into consumer activity could well uh, push inflation higher uh, in the medium term. And it's worth remembering there's normally a lag between what the Fed and other central banks do and its impact on inflation. And the risk is if the Fed and other central banks leave it too late, then inflation can start to pick up before before any of their actions have, have started to have have an impact. So I think overall, we might see inflation running slightly hot. I think there are a couple of points to highlight as well, though. I don't think it'll be immediate, um, because what you need as well as stimulus, you need uh, you need economies to be working near full capacity. It's when you have a shortage, it's when you have more demand than you can meet with supply, that you tend to have inflationary pressures. And at the moment, there's still quite a lot of slack left in the market. Again, we've highlighted unemployment. It's trending lower, but it is still relatively high. And you've also got to look at underemployment, which is those in part-time work, for example, that would like a full-time job. Those numbers are fall- falling, but they're still at quite high level, and factories aren't at full capacity yet either. So until we have that slack absorbed, I don't think we're going to get sustained uh, inflation coming through uh, particularly quickly, but it's once that slack's used up and once we see that trend higher that we need to, to, to think more seriously. And that's the point that the Fed needs to start acting if it wants to get ahead of any potential inflation. So I can see it being higher. Uh, against that, though, what would worry me more is runaway inflation. And we've seen that um, historically, uh, 70s and 80s, you had periods when you did have very high inflation that looked like it was getting out of control. Um, and I don't think we're going to see runaway inflation. I think inflation could run a little bit hot, but central banks have lots of tools to deal with uh, with inflation. And I don't think we've got all of the same factors at play that we've had in previous decades when inflation has been a big problem. You don't have the level of unionization that enables uh, unions to push for ever higher wages. The rise of the gig economy um, is, is feeding into that as well. We've also got the continued march of uh, the digital revolution technology that tends to have disinflationary uh, effects as well. And whilst we have got fiscal stimulus and it's being pushed very hard in these early stages of, of post-pandemic economic recovery, it's worth remembering that, that both in the US with Joe Biden, but we're hearing echoes of it in other parts of the world, including here in the UK. I don't think there's this expectation there's just going to be fiscal splurge just fueled by debt. What we are hearing is measures uh, around taxation in the future, not now, but looking to, to pay for some of these, these fiscal spending measures. And in the US already, there's talk of these higher corporate tax rates, introducing global minimum tax to try and target some of those companies that, that move uh, their, their tax domiciles, particularly the technology stocks are in focus for that as well. So moving those elements around, as well as potentially increasing the taxation rates for, for the richest individuals, particularly in America. So I think you know that, that the fiscal plan is a little bit more balanced than it may seem on the face of it. And there are reasons to think that inflation isn't going to run away, but it may well run a little bit hot. And that is something that one needs to consider in, uh, in an investment strategy. And it's certainly what we think about when we're deploying our investment strategies. Okay, so hopefully um, a bit more to be, more reasons to be optimistic than worried. Um, I think that's our time up. So um, thank you very much, Ben, for your comments. We'll be back again soon with a new episode. If you do have any feedback, questions or comments, please send us an email to podcast at tilney.co.uk. Thank you very much for listening.